Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I am your co-host Matt Larson and as always along with Cricket Lou. All right, here we are, month of October. <laughs> that's right, it is, it is technically the month of October, so yes. um, that's, a, that's a frenetic pace for Mr. DNS, isn't yes, it? Yes, and believe you me, we are going to get this out before the end of October. Yes, definitely, definitely. All right, well, we actually have, um, have a few things in the mailbag, uh, and we offer our uh, ongoing thanks to uh, long-suffering listener Grant Taylor, who keeps, <laughs> he emails us. He tweets at us. He, I wouldn't be surprised if one day I'm walking down the street and he comes up to me and hands me a, an envelope with a question <laughs> in it. That, uh, that sounds a little scary. <laughs> it, it does. But it would be kind of cool to have stalkers. It would be. For Mr. It, DNS. I, 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 I guess so. I guess You've so. arrived, I, right? I have, I have some limited experience with stalking. That is on the receiving side of it. And it, that part is not fun. <laughs> oh. Do you, anything, well, do you care to talk about it or not really? <laughs> well, I'll talk to you about it one-on-one -on -one sometime. Fair enough. Ooh, a cricket story I haven't heard. Yeah. All right, well, on to the podcast. So our first question from Grant Taylor is, uh, he'd like us to comment on uh, a question that was asked on the Bind Users mailing list. And mm -hmm. it boils down to somebody did a lookup for play.google.com. And yeah. that was a C name to play.l.google.com. So the first lookup that, uh, this is Bind, of course. Uh, the mm -hmm. first lookup that Bind did was to uh, look up the uh, play.google.com A record, gets the C name. Uh, the response actually includes the C name saying that play.google.com is a C name to play.l.google.com. And then it includes a bunch of A records for play.l.google.com. Right. But then what, uh, what the questioner noticed that uh, Bind did was it asked, again, it followed the C name and it looked up A records for play.l.google.com, uh, presumably getting the same list and running with that. So the question is why two lookups and not one? Right. Why didn't it accept the list of A records that were included in the first response right. and instead independently uh, send a query for play.l.google.com? And, and the Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I can answer this in one word, but go ahead. <laughs> would, that, uh, would that word be cash poisoning? Oh, I was going to go with just poison. Poison, yeah, yeah. That's, that's really uh, the gist of it. Um, if you think about uh, what the implications of accepting the whole kit and caboodle are, um, they could easily lead to uh, a very trivial cash poisoning attack. For example, if I were a bad guy and I had um, a zone, foo.example, um, set up, and I could induce you through some means to look up something in my zone, I could say, um, you know, www.foo.example, uh, is actually an alias for www.google.com. And here, by the way, are the addresses for www.google.com. And if you accepted all of that, you'd have the addresses for www.google.com that I specified. Um, and I might be feeding you something that was completely bogus, right? Yep. I think the, the overarching moral of the story here is that uh, recursive name servers have to be quite paranoid. Yeah. Don't, yeah. Don't believe anybody. 
I well, think okay, that's it, not completely true, but uh, <laughs> trust but verify you, you, that. Exactly, exactly. I think there is actually an exception if the alias points to the same zone, right? Let's see. So for, I guess so. You, for example, if you say www.foo.example is an alias for www.one.foo.example, and then you include the address record of www.one.foo.example, that should be okay. It should be. It of course could be as uh, there could be a delegation point there, but if you are the parent, you control it anyway. So I could. Mm, uh, that's I, true. That's true. So I could see an argument for not not trusting even that. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think you're right, because, of course, as you point out, www.foo.example in that example could be delegated from foo.example. And there might not be a friendly relationship between parent and child, as with so many human relationships. Uh, yes, there's DNS imitates life, or life, Im <laughs> life imitates DNS. Right, right. Well, that's a pretty easy... Uh, a pretty easy answer, isn't it? Yeah, we kind of started with a, a softball, and, and it's almost like a public service announcement in that we've reminded people of the dangers of cash poisoning. Yes, indeed, indeed. Well, that was the softball. I think this is, uh, this is if not a curve, at least, uh, at least a, a fastball. And this is the second question from Grant Taylor, who says, Would you please share your thoughts on TSIG versus SIG0, particularly with an eye towards the security implications of using either of them to sign, authenticate, or authorize dynamic DNS updates and or slave zone transfers across the open internet? Yeah, so this is this is a good question, and it uh, it caused me to make sure that I was, uh, I, I dusted off the, the knowledge of uh, SIG0 and went and looked at RFC 2931, which, <laughs> which, yeah, from, let's see, which is dated September of 2000. We wow. have been doing this a long time. Yeah, because you and I were doing, <laughs> you and I were doing DNS like ten years before that. Oh yeah, we were doing DNS in the, I mean, late eighties for me, right? Yeah, eighty nine. I think eighty nine or eighty. I think I can go back. I can go back to eighty nine, starting in college. The, the uh, administration system administration. Work. I had a, I had a great job in college. I got paid uh, pretty good money from a work study standard uh, to do SunOS uh, 4.0.3 and then later 4.1 and then later 4.1.1 uh, system administration. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. But we digress. So anyway, uh, <laughs> RFC 2931, I don't think, according to the IETF uh, hyperlinks in the RFCs, I don't think this has been updated. I think you still have to go back 15 years to get the uh, uh, canonical standard for SIG0. But I guess to, to summarize, without doing too much uh, violence with an analogy, you could say that uh, TSIG and SIG0 uh, are basically the same, except one TSIG uses uh, shared keys, shared secrets, mm -hmm. and SIG0 uses uh, public key cryptography. Um, both, right. both of them are designed to authenticate DNS messages. So uh, you know, note I didn't say queries and responses. In anything that uses a DNS message, where that be, of course, a query and response, or uh, a dynamic update, or mm -hmm. a sequence of messages in a zone transfer, those can uh, all be authenticated by TSIG and SIG0. Mm -hmm. Right, right, exactly. And uh, so, go ahead. Oh, 
Oh, I was going to say, so So, really, I think so, there are a couple of uh, obvious follow-up questions, which, uh, which are, <laughs> to my mind, um, how many name servers support SIG0? Um, and, and also, are you likely to have that kind of, um, you know, that kind of uh, relationship so that you can use SIG0 between client and server? I, I honestly do not know. I, maybe I shouldn't admit this in public, but I, I have never actually configured it and used it. I've just never had a reason to. Have you? I have not, but um, I'm fairly certain that SIG0 support is pretty spotty. So, for example, you um, can fairly easily use TSIG as a mechanism for um, signing dynamic updates. Um, I think you would be hard-pressed to find uh, you know, libraries that would allow you to use SIG0 to do the same thing. You know, maybe we should talk a little bit more about how SIG0 actually works and, for that matter, what the, where the name comes from. Sure um, thing. And in fact, so we do have to take a little bit of a trip down memory lane here. Um, so, <laughs> As we so often do. <laughs> no precedent for that. All right, so the original DNSSEC specification uh, in RFC, well, there have been three generations of DNSSEC. The first was 2065, and nobody did that. The consensus was uh, this just isn't deployable for operational reasons. Uh, right. And then that was right. updated by RFC 2535, and that got special body implementation, but for all intents and purposes, it was just in pockets, people doing research or for curiosity. I mean, I, maybe listeners will uh, write in uh, and correct us, but I, I think you can say there was really no DNSSEC deployment of any note, uh, even with RFC 2535. But I, I documented the damn thing in, in <laughs> DNS and Bind's fourth edition, I think. And I think actually there was, I think Bind 8. Oh, gosh, 8.2 or... Something like that. They actually did. did a, I think they had a DNSSEC implementation that was based on that, but boy, that was hard to work with. Yeah, and you remember it also, it, it, would, it would verify the zone file as it loaded it. Oh. <coughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. Took me by such surprise that I coughed. There you go. Uh, so in the original DNSSEC, um, the record types that supported DNSSEC were uh, SIG for the signature, key for the... Uh, public key material, and then NXT for what we now think of as NSEC. Mm -hmm. And as people got experience with RFC 2535, such as they did with the limited deployment, and as we did more research into how DNSSEC would work, and uh, the DS record was invented, uh, it became clear that we were going to have migration issues. In fact, I think it was the existence of DS. Was that it? Was that what caused the great type code roll? Shame on me for not knowing. Oh gosh, Olafur, you would know better than I. Oliver Gustmusson is, is screaming at his at his MP3 <laughs> player now. He has told me that he has actually done that, <laughs> although it's probably not an MP3 player. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, uh, he 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 told me that there are a few of these that he can't listen to. I, I guess he sometimes re-listens to them just to have it on the background, which I guess we should be flattered by, and that there are some that he just can't because I guess we're just too far removed from reality to any <laughs> it's it's like the it's like the the dns geeks equivalent of a horror movie where you're watching the horror movie and screaming don't go in there <laughs> don't go in there it was the ds record it was the ds record so i yeah. i believe it was the ds record but i'm prepared to be totally wrong about that so we realized all right we, we need to do uh, a migration here and we need to somehow signal 
the new semantics of how we're changing the DNSSEC protocol. And there were, there were various options discussed. And in fact, I pulled up that RFC as well. I actually did a little research for once. Um, and that don't is RFC. Don't set any precedents now. <laughs> What's that? I said, don't set any precedents yeah. now. <laughs> uh, that is RFC 3755, which is called Legacy Resolver Compatibility for Delegation Signer. Well, oh. duh, it's in the title of the RFC. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. we hadn't made such a big deal out of that, I'd go back and edit that out, but too late. One, <laughs> one take. We do this in one take. It happens how it That's happens. Right. Um, That's right. That's so right. Professionals. So it is indeed DS was the, was the cause of this. Olafur, you may stop screaming. And... Uh, so the, there were several, if you read 3755, you'll, you'll see um, an outline of the problem and several different options for uh, how, to, how to solve it. And, and, and the issue here, to be clear, is that the semantics of DNSSEC were changing. And so even though there had been very little deployment, we didn't want a situation where uh, the uh, code that understood the old semantics would get confused talking to code with the new semantics. So how do you, how do you right. signal that? And what we ultimately mm -hmm. decided as documented in uh, 3755 is let's just change the type codes. Let's roll the type codes for SIG, key, and NXT. And that's how we got RRSIG, DNS key, and NSEC. Yep. But then the question became, what about, what about SIG zero? And the decision was made, let's just leave SIG zero alone. SIG zero will still use the SIG record and it will still use the, the key record. I, mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about how it works, or do you? Want, I'm just I'm just going on and on here. Go ahead, you're on a roll. I'm on a roll. All right. So the way it, the way it works is, uh, so the SIG record and the RR SIG record, its successor, which has exactly the same wire format, uh, they have a field called the type covered field because after all, the whole point of the SIG and RR SIG record is to contain a signature over uh, a resource record set, and mm -hmm. you need to know which of the types at a given name, because there can be, if you have multiple types at a name, so like if example.com has an SOA and NS records at it, uh, you're gonna have multiple RR SIG records, or in the past you would have had multiple SIG records. And they're both associated with uh, example.com. One has the signature for the SOA record, and the other has the signature for the, uh, the NS records. And in fact, uh, SIG records and RR SIG records do not form RR sets. They're un unusual in that in that regard. Mm -hmm. So they have this field in them, the SIG record and the RR SIG record, that says what is the type covered, uh, what is the type of records that this is a signature for, and that's just the the, the DNS type number of the particular record type. So SIG zero in the type covered field has a zero, hence the name. And what that means is it's not covering uh, a set of uh, resource records in a name, but rather it's covering an entire DNS message. So the, That's right. So the signature is over an entire message. And you generate that signature with a private key that is kept private on whatever the thing is that's generating the signature for this DNS message, whether it be a query or a response or a dynamic update message or whatever. Whatever thing is generating that uses the private key it's been configured with to generate the signature in, in really exactly the same way that a TSIG signature is generated in terms of the rules of what do you include in the message and what do you don't. Um, and so you use your private key, uh, generate the signature, put the signature in, and then the question is, where do you get the public key to do the verification of that signature? Well, the answer mm -hmm. is there also is in the uh, SIG record, there's the signer's name field. 
Right. And the in an RRSIG record, the signer's name field is just the name of the zone. But in this case, in the uh, SIG record, SIG zero record, it can be anything, and it's a name that points to where there's going to be, in this case, a key record, not a DNS key record, because SIG zero uses the old record, the key record. So at the name in the SIG zero records signer's name field, at that name, there will be a key record which will contain the public key that you can use to validate the signature over this DNS message or succession of DNS messages. Actually, wait a minute. It, no, it's over a DNS message at a time. Yeah, yeah I think that's DNS right. DNS message at a time. That's right. And, and hence my point, which is, um, you know, if you were, uh, as, as Grant was saying, if you were intending to use something like SIG0 to uh, sign a dynamic update, then you'd have to have that infrastructure in place. I mean, not, not only would you have to have uh, a client that understood SIG0 and knew how to, to calculate the appropriate SIG0 uh, record for a, a dynamic update, you'd have to have all of that. You'd have to have a, a, a key pair generated, you'd have to have a key published, uh, a private key somewhere on the, on the signer. And I think um, there are, are relatively few implementations of that and even fewer uh, combinations of, of name servers that understand it, clients that understand it, and uh, and uh, appropriate setups between you know between client and and server. And as if that were not enough, there's yet another reason, which is performance. Mm, true. Because you're doing public key crypto operations, and and signing in particular is uh, is expensive. And whereas TSIG uh, is using a cryptographic cache, it's using well, probably not MD5 anymore. Everybody's probably migrated to SHA-1 or SHA-256. Um, right. Well, strictly speaking, SHA-2 with a 256-bit output. Um, yes. And and that is that is oodles faster, uh, probably by multiple orders of magnitude than uh, running RSA or ECC. Right. Right. And I would imagine, I would imagine, given when SIG zero was defined, other um, other crypto algorithms may not be supported. Certainly, well, you know, that's a good point. Um, you know, it, yeah. the, the, key, the key record and the DNS key record, of course, has been, has been updated many times to accommodate uh, different, um, I forget whether it's different protocols or different algorithms, different algorithms. So it supports elliptic curve cryptography now of various flavors and things like that. But I don't know that they've ever done the same for key. Well, we'd have to look at the IANA registry for for that, and I wonder if there's a separate IANA registry for RRSIG versus SIG, or if it's all mm -hmm. one. I don't know. Yeah. Not time. Yeah. We could hit. We could hit pause and go look, <laughs> or we could just keep going. You know <laughs> Press what, on. You know what we rarely do. Other podcasts that I listen to, they like have updates in the subsequent podcasts about things that have happened in previous podcasts, so we could remember. <laughs> That 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 actually suggests a certain amount of organization. <laughs> it does. Maybe I don't know. Maybe if we remember, I'll look it. I'll look it up, and we can. So listeners, don't contain your excitement until the next <laughs> yes. episode, whenever it might occur. So yes, exactly, exactly. All right, are we done with that? I I think so. I mean, I think that the upshot is um, to to. You know, boil it down to the <laughs> smallest kernel. It, it's use TSIG, yeah. um, and then if we were to expand on that, it's for the following reasons. 
um, computational uh, overhead, support, setup, et cetera. Yep. Yeah, T6 is pretty easy. Yeah, very easy, very easy. All right. So our, our last question, once again, from Grant Taylor, uh, he asks us, this one he tweeted at us. So mm. you, you can follow Ask Mr. DNS. There's no dash in there. It's just Ask Mr. DNS. Uh, Mr. DNS tweets very occasionally when the spirit moves him. Um, but he tweeted at us, what is your opinion of EDNS client subnet support? Right, right. And I guess before answering that, we should explain what EDNS client subnet is. Um, it's a, first of all, it's an EDNS option. Uh, EDNS is a set of uh, extensions to what you might call classical DNS that have enabled us, for example, to carry DNS messages that are larger than 512 bytes, which is the traditional limit on the size of a, a DNS message, over UDP. Um, and uh, it, it just it, it's used in that case as uh, kind of a, s a signaling protocol between the client and the server. The, the client says, hey, uh, here's my query, and by the way, I can accept a UDP-based DNS message of up to 4K. And uh, the server then is, is able to respond and say, oh, okay, here's your much larger message than I would otherwise send. Um, you know, I might normally have to, to indicate that uh, this response is truncated with the, the TC bit and the header and you'd have to retransmit. But in this case, since I know you can accept a larger response, I'm going to send you this larger response over UDP. Um, now, this is another uh, eDNS option, a, a different one. Uh, and this is designed to address uh, a particular problem. Um, basically, there are a lot of organizations out there on the internet that want to give you a different response to your query based on where you are in the world. Um, so for example, if you're on the west coast of the United States and you look up uh, the domain name of, of uh, a website or the domain name of some some object, maybe it's some movie that you want to watch on Netflix or some other streaming service, um, the, the provider would like to give you an address uh, of a copy of that resource that's physically close to you, or at least you know, close to you in internet terms, so that uh, you can download it very efficiently. Uh, unfortunately, the way that DNS works, um, the authoritative name server that's giving out that response and might have the intelligence to give you an answer that's close to you only sees the IP address of the recursive name server um, that you're using. As, uh, when, they, when they see the query, and they have to, to make that judgment based on that IP address. And in some cases, that uh, recursive name server may not be particularly close to you, and so they may give out a less than optimal response. You can imagine, for example, if you're using Google Public DNS or if you're using OpenDNS, um, you know, you're firing your query at uh, one of, say, two Anycast addresses out into the cloud, um, that's not the same IP address that gets used for the outbound query to the authoritative name server, but you know that that uh, instance of OpenDNS or Google Public DNS that queries the authoritative isn't necessarily very close to you. Um, so, uh, eDNS client subnet is a way uh, uh, a way to allow the recursive name server to tag that query that it's sending to the upstream authoritative name server with some indication of your IP address. It's not necessarily your IP address. In fact, it, it, it almost never is. But it might be, for example, the slash 24 that you're on. And it passes that up in a, in a special record so that the authoritative name server can examine that and make 
a determination as to what data to return to you based on, say, the slash 24 that you're on. So is that is that a, a reasonable uh, uh, description of EDNS client subnet? Oh, I, I think you nailed it. Yeah. Okay. And and this is something, I mean, I, the people who, uh, who care about this, uh, the, the kinds of people would be uh, managed DNS providers like Dyn, my employer, right? One of the things we offer uh, are various mm -hmm. advanced DNS features so that our customers can set up zones where they have, you know, for a given name, they can say, all right, if the query is coming from, you know, this region of the world, return this answer. If it's coming from this region of the world, return this answer. And in order to do that optimally, you need to know where the person is. So if they're using yeah. a name server, recursive server that's somewhere completely different than where they are, that's that's a problem. And the, that, as you pointed out, uh, that becomes an issue because of the prevalence that we now have of uh, these big recursive DNS providers like Google Public DNS, uh, Open DNS. They were probably the first. I think they were the first to really do this on any on any large scale. Um, Dyn mm -hmm. has a service called Internet Guide. We do, we do the same thing. A lot a lot of people do this, uh, and you know often those services, the big ones, are AnyCast. So the chances that you're going to get to a recursive server close to you are good. But it still would be better if you could actually signal your actual network that you're on. Uh, and then the other people who care a lot about this are CDNs, content delivery mm -hmm. networks, uh, because they also do various um, geolocation magic. They want to send you to a copy of uh, content that's closest to you. So they want to know where you are. And they, uh, they, one way to do that is to use, you know, they'll, they'll run DNS on your behalf and they will do the same kind of thing. They'll look at the origin of the, of the query. That's right. That's right. And I would imagine there, there are probably some people out there who are doing automatic localization of content, depending on where it is you're coming from. Google does that, for example. If I, yeah. if I go to google.com from Hong Kong, I'll see a different version of google.com. In fact, I think they automatically redirect to, uh, to a .hk subdomain. Um, and so it's obviously helpful to know uh, what somebody's source IP address is if... Um, you know, if you can, <laughs> it, 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 to be able to do that kind of localization as precisely as possible. Yeah, and indeed, if you look at the spec, this is not yet an RFC. It's still a spec that's being uh, hashed mm -hmm. out in the uh, DNS op working group in the ITF. It's a de facto specification in that it's being, I would say, at this point, wide, widely used. Uh, but if you look at the authors, it's people from Google, uh, Google, of course, being Google, uh, public DNS provider Akamai, uh, largest CDN, and oh, and then mm -hmm. also, also Google. I thought there was somebody else. I thought there was somebody else from yet another organization, but there's not. But the point is, the authors of the draft, the people with the, uh, the people with the issues, are the people who put forth the protocol. Yeah, yeah, and, and as far as as my opinion of it, I mean, I think it's I think it's uh, interesting. It's a nice sort of tuning facility within within DNS. The there there are some issues with it um, on the recursive name server. It becomes pretty costly to support, and the reason for that is that um, a recursive name server that's handling queries from lots of different clients on lots of different networks all of a sudden has to cache according to the source IP address of the querier. So not just the response that he got, but he has to say, "Well, I got a query from a guy on." Uh, network A, and uh, you know I got a response, and I'm going to tuck that in my cache. But I have to remember that I got that in response to uh, 
you know, the substream query that I tagged as being from network A. I might not get the same response if I, if I tag that upstream query, even if it's for exactly the same piece of data, if I tag it as being from network B. So it basically kind of uh, forces you to partition your cache uh, effectively. Um, and, and that, um, as you might imagine, would, would kind of bloat memory utilization. If you had lots and lots of clients from lots and lots of different subnets, uh, boy, the, you could end up with a whole lot more information and cache and a, a real cache management issue. Yeah, anecdotally, I've heard 10x, uh, which doesn't mm -hmm. surprise me at all. I mean, that's just one number somebody quoted. Uh, it obviously depends a lot on the sort of the splay of sources, right? A lot of sources versus fewer sources. Um, right. And then, of course, if you're caching, uh, the, the, the same impact on caching, then rendering the cache um, less useful of effectively. Because uh, if it's mm -hmm. cached, if a given piece of data is cached from network A and you get a query from network B, you can't return it. You have to look it up again. Uh, right. So that's more queries. So the recursive is sending more queries out. And from uh, an authoritative service perspective, um, they're going to see more queries for zones that they host if they support uh, EDNS client subnet. Right, right. I would say that there tends to be not quite as much additional burden on the authoritatives. The authoritatives tend to be not standard authoritative name servers like Bind and things like that. Um, they might be cloud-based services like like Dyn's, for example, or they might be uh, load balancing um, you know, devices of some kind as well that uh, do load balancing based on the, the IP address of the querier. Um, but they don't have quite the, the, the complexity um, that the recursive does. The recursive really bears a lot of that burden. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was another interesting issue uh, about eDNS client subnet that uh, a friend of mine who's in the DNS security business brought up, which is that uh, apparently there are, there are a fair number of organizations that are beginning to snoop that data. Um, so they're, they're setting up authoritative name servers and then looking at the data. Um, I forget exactly how it is that they do the correlation between sort of your activity out there on the Internet and then, uh, you know, your, your identity when you come and, and query their name server. But there are some interesting uh, implications for privacy on the Internet to having, you know, at least your, say, slash 24 revealed when you visit somebody's website. Mm-hmm. You can also uh, you can also use it. This isn't so much an attack as sort of an inherent weakness in the protocol. You can use it to sort of probe the authoritative server and, and find out the map, you will. At Dying, we call it the, the underlying maps to determine how our servers respond. Um, mm -hmm. Because you could just keep sending queries uh, purporting to be from different networks and watch as the response varies. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. So there, there are some privacy implications. I wish I, I wish I remembered better um, what the uh, what the scenario was, but uh, it was certainly something that was unforeseen when when the folks who came up with the design of EDNS zero client subnet came up with it. So does uh, Infoblox do you support this on the recursive and or the authoritative side? Um, we don't, and it's principally because of the implementation complexity on the recursive side. Okay. Yeah, so I, I, I would be remiss if I said that, uh, or if I didn't say that Dyn does support it. Uh, we've, we've opted to support it just recently, but we, we do now support it. On the authoritative side? On the side? authoritative side, yeah. Okay. Um, and you know, the, another interesting thing to say about this is uh, if we look at how eDNS itself, the protocol extension, is actually 
uh, implemented. Uh, it's implemented in, in a, a, a hacky versus or a hacky and yet elegant way, I think. Uh, or it's a, it's a it's a clever hack. That's probably the best way to describe <laughs> it. Um, yes. You know, we're out of out of space in the DNS header. Uh, it, all, all the bits are used. So the question is, how, where, where do you fit more stuff in a DNS message for the kind of advanced signaling that you um, that you get with eDNS? And the answer was, well, you can put almost an arbitrary number of resource records in a DNS, DNS message. So let's just stick all this in a, in a resource record. So there's this resource record called OPT for options, and it goes as the very last record in the message. And all of the fields in there are redesignated to mean different things in an eDNS context. So it's never a, f uh, a record that you would see in a zone file. It's, uh, it's ephemeral. It's, it only applies to the particular DNS message that contains it. Like a TSIG record. Like a TSIG record, exactly. Same, same thing. Well, yeah. the issue is if you're doing inspection of DNS messages and you think it's still, I don't know, 1999, and, <laughs> and you, you, you look at DNS queries, you go, wait a minute, I think queries should only have a header and a question section. What's this additional section tacked on with one, one record in it, and what's this opt record? Um, right. You know, or maybe you understand the opt record, but you uh, don't anticipate actual options in, in, in eDNS. So the, the ability to have arbitrary um, extra options in eDNS is a, something that hasn't been widely used. The only other thing I know of that uses this is the NSID, the name server ID extension. Mm, yeah, mm -hmm, um, that's true. I don't know if there are any others. So, so you could have um, naive uh, expectations of what an opt record itself should look like. Maybe you expect an opt record, that's okay, but you look at it and go, oh, wait, what's this extra stuff in the opt record? Um, so what, what people have found, I was talking to uh, my friend Rob Fleischman, who uh, was CTO of Zeracle, and they were bought by, by Akamai. Uh, you know, they added at, at, you know, at, at great complexity uh, eDNS client subnet support to their recursive server, which is their main, yes. their main product. And, and he discovered right. That uh, well, you were you were there. Was that the inside baseball? He, you know, and in fact, mm -hmm. the episode uh, that we recorded at Inside Baseball, Rob talked about it. Um, mm -hmm. That he discovered just a, a huge number of uh, stuff in between client and server uh, did not like eDNS client subnet and yeah. queries yeah. were just not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> so as a result, what you tend to and this is so this is really unfortunate. I think what you end up happening is you, you have to have. Uh, uh, out-of-band uh, agreement to support it between a given client and a, and a given server. Yeah, yeah. What happened to the old internet dictum of be liberal in what you accept? Gone. Yeah, apparently. In my day. Apparently. <laughs> we didn't have this network address translation. That's right. We didn't have these middle boxes interfering with our packets. All right, well, I think we've beaten EDNS client subnet to death. I believe we have. <laughs> I wish I could have remembered what David was talking about, though. Well, hey, oh well, I'll come, back, I'll come back to that. I'll come back to it. Yes, exactly. Follow up. Exactly. All right, so what are the, well, we have two follow-up things. I've forgotten the previous one already. Oh, it's are there separate IANA registries for uh, algorithm? Key. For yeah, key yeah. And, and, uh, and DNS, and DNS key. key. Okay, oh. you've got that. I'm going to follow up with David on the whole uh, privacy implications of eDNS client subnet. Sounds good. All right. Did, did you We've got our next episode? We do. Did you see? Are, are you? Uh, I don't know if you're like follow Twitter in real time. Did you? Did you see the tweet I, 
I sent like I don't know maybe an hour ago about Halloween candy. I did. I did. I thought. Did I retweet it? I thought it was. Oh. I was going to retweet it. I don't. Well, I don't know. If you did, I per- haven't seen it. So perhaps I didn't. Yeah. No. I, I. I. I tweeted that next year I need to remember not to buy Halloween candy that I like. Yes. Exactly. What did you buy? Uh, peanut M and M's. Oh. Okay. I love, okay. I like peanut M and M's. I love yeah. peanut M and M's. They're the only kind of M and M's as far as I'm concerned. Uh, <laughs> I, I recognize no other M and M variant other than peanut M and M's. And uh, little Snickers bars. Hmm. Remember, be liberal in what you accept. I don't get it. You have to accept. You have to accept other varieties of oh, M and M's. That's what I'm saying. You know, you can't just say peanut M and M's are the only kind of M and M's. You don't. You cannot perhaps foresee the types of M and M's to come in the future and the, the other types that exist. Today. I suppose you're right. There could be some <laughs> fantastic M and M yet uninvented, and if I were not open to it, I would never, never know it and might actually like it. Although it's yeah, hard to imagine possible. liking it more than peanut M&M's. Yeah, no, I understand that. Peanut M&M's are, are, are uh, perhaps the, the, the summit, the apex, the acme of, of the M&M's evolution. So I, I made an off-the-cuff comment in a, in a meeting at, at Dine about, uh, about peanut M&M's. I mean, it was, really, it was just kind of a uh, throwaway, went, went by quickly. And uh, at, at my last birthday, um, Brianne and Ashley, uh, two of the executive admins, remembered this. And I get an Amazon box, and I open it up, and there's a five-pound bag of peanut M&Ms. Oh! <laughs> Did you even know they made five-pound bags of peanut M&Ms? I think I've seen, I think the biggest I've seen is a two-pound bag. That's the biggest that I think you can generally get at, like, a grocery store. Yeah, well, five-pound bags exist in retail packaging. Yeah. Did they say grocery store back where you are? I say that, as opposed to what, supermarket? Yeah, yeah supermarket, market. Um, there, it, it, there's various, there are various regionalisms for what I call a grocery store. In, uh, yeah. in northern Illinois, we call it a grocery store. Okay, okay. And what about uh, what about a non-alcoholic carbonated beverage? What do you call that? Well, growing up, we all called it pop, but mm. but I've I've been a soda man for twenty plus years now, so I go back. It's you know, so I go back to my hometown in northern Illinois. I swear, people talk differently <laughs> than than they did when you yes, grew up. Yes, absolutely. There. In the in the twenty five years since I've lived there, everyone is now talking differently. <laughs> There's, it's just the beginning of that stereotypical sort of Minneapolis, uh, North Dakota, you know, oh, the round O sound. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and it's just the beginning of it there. And, uh, and it, having been away from it for so long, I go back and it's like, I, I'm telling you, people didn't talk that way when I was young. They've all changed. Huh. Yeah. It must be immigration must into, be. into Rockford. Yes. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Obviously, a lot has changed in my old hometown, too. <laughs> you can't go back. <sighs> no. No, you can't. Well, should we sew it up? I think we should. Tie it up in a bow? All right. Well, thank you, as always, for tuning in to the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, we would love to hear from you. Please send your uh, cards, letters, and questions to Mr. DNS, MRDNS, at Ask dash mrdns.com uh till next time goodbye from cricket and from matt bye-bye folks <laughs>